Well, hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Payers and Players podcast. My name's Robert. I'm here with Scott and we've got an exciting guest today. Before we tackle that, I've had a few people ask about subscribing to the podcast. Uh, if you want to subscribe, you can go to Twitter, just search at Payers Players and you can subscribe right there. Uh, so with that, Scott, why don't you introduce our guest for this episode? Yeah, so excited to have David Roditi, the head coach at his alma mater, TCU. He's been there since 2010. Um, as a player, he was a three-time All-American, and he holds the school record for most career victories with 250, which is amazing. And if I had to guess, I'll bet his, I'll bet his blood is purple. Um, he won... The, the as a team TCU won the national indoors in 2022 and 23 and have achieved nine consecutive sweet 16s and for the last nine years they finished in the ITA top 10 so one of the most um successful college programs in, in America for sure coach welcome to the show thank you Scott thank you Robert thanks for having me appreciate it so before we get into you know some some of the things that uh, we're, we're, you're doing at TCU can you give us a little bit of your tennis history and your background Yes, I, I was born and raised in Mexico and then moved at 14 years old. I was a good junior growing up in Mexico, moved to the United States to learn how to speak English. When I was 14, I had the dual citizenship. And then I stayed, I lived with coach Robert Clausen and he was my guardian, did all the juniors in Southern California, eventually got to like the Kalamazoo's and the clay courts, was recruited by TCU. Played at TCU, best time of my life under coach, legendary coach Bartson, Todd Bartson, from 92 to 96. We had we had very successful run. We finished, I believe, 13, 7, 6, or 6, 5, and 3, my four years. So great, you know, great, great time. Had some successful uh, success in doubles at the, at the highest level in college. Played on the tour for four years in doubles only. Had a few too many injuries. Got up to 41, 41 ATP. It was a quick up and a quick down. I loved it. Got to play all the big tournaments. Sort of a dream come true. Played Davis Cup for Mexico during that time. Played in 10 ties. Uh, one against Germany with Boris Becker. That was really awesome in 1997. Started my Davis Cup career 0 and 5 and then finished 5 and 5. So I made a nice little comeback there. Uh probably because kind of brought down the, the the team from the world group to like group two or three. So I was able to get some better draws, I guess. And uh we, you know, whatever, won some matches there. And then started my coaching career at the University of Texas under uh hopefully one day uh Hall of Famer Michael Center at University of Texas, I was his assistant in 2000, and then did some junior coaching uh, academy at St. Stephen's, national coach at USTA, and then started in 2010 here at TCU. Let me give an example and then ask you a question. So, uh, for example, with my child in his serve, elbows low a lot when he was younger. Every right. coach tried to raise his elbow in the serve, right? Right. None of them could could get him to raise his elbow. And now that he's starting to grow, the elbow naturally raises. And I think it was just a strength thing. It was right? a shoulder strength. It's probably in the shoulder. That's right. And so, and so a lot of these young coaches that didn't understand that were so focused on it. And just if they would have gone through a certain number of juniors, they might have had the wisdom to go, let's just wait and see where that is in a year or two when he grows. Right. I wonder. So here's my question to you. Because I coached too, but I didn't. I never coached tennis. You know as well as I do. When you're a young coach, there's some learning that happens, and the learning that happens with a young coach is often through mistakes with the kids that you're coaching. Correct. And so, how many? And I see this. I see what I call fully realized coaches out there that they've been through, say, a hundred elite players in their life, or five hundred, or however many. And they've made the mistakes, and all those mistakes result in that coach coaching your child at that moment and them having the wisdom they need to have. Then you see the younger coaches that are learning it on your child, right? So they're giving lessons to your child, and they don't. the coach doesn't know what they don't know, and they're learning it and kind of screwing it up with your child. How many kids do you think you have to go through before, as a coach, you, you probably have had enough exposure that you know what you need to know? Oh, man. Um, 
that's a really that's too too tough too tough to say and i wish i could come give an estimate but give, give it for you, you like know, I, 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 I don't know like I, yeah i don't know if i think it depends i think it depends because because if you're if you have the right if you are a young coach but you have the right mentor around you then that's less players that you need to go through because you're also learning from the person above you and with you. Good point. Um, so that can speed that up. And I, I, you know, it may not be the amount of players. It could also be the amount of time and hours in how you're spending that time with the player and what you're exposed to in the level. So, um, you know, ideally, ideally every coach is like, if you want to run a company that probably the best person at the top would be somebody who who has done it all from the very beginning and understands that company from the very very beginning and how to you know what the workers are doing on the assembly line all the way up to the people making all the tough decisions so there is i think that influences that process as well it's, well, it's the access yeah. and, who, and you know are you somewhere on an island trying to figure out all yourself versus having somebody around you that that can save some time yeah and, and, uh, and i think i think yeah. also the other thing that you you want to think about is just the the level that you're coaching because you know like you say like facundo coaching you know um caminori it's much different than facundo coaching a, a total beginner you know, there's a total different skill set to work with and what you need to work fo focus on and work on are two totally different things. And you can maybe get away with less experience the better the player is well, because you're yes. not, you know, yeah, go ahead. A good yeah. point, Scott. No, and what I would say too is, is that um, in, in Coach Jose Guerra's USA, you talk about this a lot, that you have teachers and you have coaches and there is a difference uh, between teachers and coaches. I would say if you made Devin and I have to pick one, I would say I'm more of a teacher and he's more of a coach. And um, there is a difference. And if what you, is the difference? Explain it. Well, teaching, teaching is more about making, you know, get a little more technical, um, get a little bit more into the, the weeds of, of the strategy or the patterns or the, uh, how to how to organize your sort of your lesson plan for the day, uh, kind of like a teacher would, and and how go through the progressions of we're going to do this here, and then we're going to progress to this other drill, and then at the end we're going to end up with this. I think that's more of a kind of teaching, whereas coaching is you get more into the more into the mind and more into the, the habits and more into the routines, more into the off-court, uh, more into the rela outside relationships and how how is Cameron Nori, how is he dealing with his agent? How's how's Cameron Nori dealing with the with the press in, in England? And you know, it has nothing to do with teaching. It's just more more on the mental, psychological, and really understanding who who you're who your player is um, and, and be able to help him navigate all of those distractions. Um, I think, um, Makes sense. you know, yeah. I think, and you, yeah, junior tennis needs to be more technical and in college, it's more of a coaching thing because it's about the player and the yeah. human. I think, I because think they college, walk in with more skill. Get, yeah. I think you still get some technical. I still, there's not not less way less than in the juniors you still do with especially with volleys um some of the miscellaneous type shots and i think the art the art of being a, a good teacher in this case is what is the one thing this i think this is always a question that we gotta ask ourselves as teachers let's say someone is served what is the one thing that I can have this player focus on or work on or simply focus on, think about what's the one thing, the most simple thing that can make the biggest difference in this serve right now? 
And, and if you can do that, if you can find the source, then you you just save yourself a lot of frustration on the player side, a lot of time, and you just get to the root of the problem. That's where I think that the experience and all those players that you were talking about and all those mistakes that you've made is like, oh my God, if I would have seen that six months ago, we would have saved ourselves six months of yeah. of trial and error and guessing. And you just go right to the source. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So I think that's also part of it. So it's, man, you're scaring me. I'm afraid to talk now. You know, tomorrow when we go to practice, <laughs> you're making me think too much now. Uh, and I well, think, you know, no, no, no. It's not. Yeah. It's not that. It's just so many. There are so many coaches out there in tennis, and I think more than any sport I've ever been involved with, the range of good and bad coaches is a gigantic range, right? right? The the bad ones in tennis are really bad. The good ones are really good, and. Where I think if you went to a high school football team, the that range is much smaller. And I've never understood why. And I think it's kind of because junior tennis is sort of the Wild West. Anybody that played tennis can become a coach and get a basket of balls, find a court. Now they're a coach, right? Um, I have a I good story that, about that, Scott, if you want to have a laugh for a minute. Yeah, go. Sure. No, go for it. True story. A friend of mine here in Dallas, you know, Highland Park, very affluential uh, neighborhood. Uh, this guy would come in and, and, and deposit money at Bank of America, all his checks from that day. He was just a coach, he played on the tour, was successful teaching ladies, kids, people's homes, uh, courts, kind of that that setting, and would just deposit money all the time. And, and the bank teller eventually just asked him, like, what do you do? He said, I teach tennis. Like, where? Well, at this you know, public courts, wherever is that like you can, you still have a, and, and to make the story short, the, the, the bank teller that the guy behind the, the, the desk there became a tennis coach. And my buddy started <laughs> seeing him teaching and he still does. And he started teaching and had groups, had really good energy and had a bunch of groups and started teaching and he became a coach. He became a teacher. And it's just scary that that is, that can happen every day, probably happens every day somewhere where somebody decides I'm going to be a, a tennis coach. And that's <laughs> how that person had never played the game, just kind of would look around, you know, get a book, look online, say enough, good personality and become yeah. a tennis teacher. So you're right. You're right about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the things you got to be careful because, like we, you know, we sort of see that some of the local local parks here, and you know, it's more it's more like he's an aerobics coach than he is a tennis coach because he's just keeping the the lesson going. It's not something that you'd want to ever take any technical advice from, but they can give a good, you know, for you know, six to eight women out there, keep them active, you know, keep the practices running. They can do that pretty well, but uh, don't listen to uh, when they tell you to turn your shoulders or whatever. Just ignore that part of it yes yes uh, so, so right. hey I want, I want to talk a little bit about i know that uh, tcu has one of the most uh raucous fan environments and something that a lot of schools probably would would like to emulate but you know you guys can get a couple thousand fans to a match and you guys have all this great atmosphere and energy at your matches tell us you know how how do you do that what has been uh, you know, sort of critical to to getting that kind of a fan base, and why aren't more schools doing it? Yeah, so so before, you know, that's come up a, a lot, and we were lucky, we're very fortunate that we're that parking is not an issue, that location is perfect. We're within five minutes of five country clubs. We are right in the middle of a beautiful neighborhood, very safe, very accessible we're right in the heart of everything our even our tennis center it was built with for the public it was yeah it was built for people so we already have a natural traffic of fan of tennis fans coming into our center so there and, are a and, lot and for, of and for those of us for those of us who don't know can you tell, tell us a little bit about your tennis facility is it on campus and um, how many courts, et cetera? So it is on campus. It is on campus. It used to be a nine hole golf course. 
So it's a very looks, you know, looks exactly what you would think a golf course and the fairways became indented tennis courts. We have four sets of four. So 16 courts for the public. And then we have six courts in a row also sunken into the ground, surrounded by grass uh, for our for our varsity courts, what we call our purple varsity courts or Todd Bartson courts. So those are six in a row and we don't even have windscreens because the backdrop is the grass. And and then we have our indoor courts uh, right next to it. So it's uh, it's beautiful. Nobody would ever do something like this because of amount of land. Uh, I, I'm, I, I will. I assume the university is looking at this land like, oh my God, everything that we could possibly do with all that land. Uh, why do we need, you know, 22 uh, courts? So we got to protect it, not even just 22, 22 outdoor and, and then 27 total. So uh, it's a beautiful setting. We, we, we have a fox, we have hawks catching squirrels all the time. It's, it's just, uh, Sometimes I, I laugh because we get mad, mad at the crows because they, they're so loud. Sometimes they're so annoying. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're lucky that we're not next to a freeway or looking at some huge overpass uh, well, listening to the traffic. And Well, if, uh, you know. if, you're, if you've ever been to University of Louisville, we, we're right next to the airport. And so not in a freeway. So we have traffic on one side, the freeway on the one side, and then we have planes going overhead every five minutes or so so it's it's not uh, conducive at all to what you're talking about well in the recruiting process you would just say you're getting them ready for the u.s open right <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> that's a good spin i like yeah, it that's yeah. quick too yeah i like it um, well, so, so let me ask yeah. oh go ahead no no i'm just saying our, uh, about our facility so it's uh it, so when promoting getting people out here there is no reason not to. We just had to put a lot of time and energy. Uh, when I'm, I'm still, I look at, I look at my uh, board here, erase board on in my office. It still says at the very top, a thousand fans at a tennis match. Put that up there on the on day one. Uh, I learned that from Mr. Wayne Bryan. No, no, no better promoter of tennis than Wayne Bryan. And I put that on my board and I told the guys on the team, we had a great group of seniors, great leaders, players that I, I knew care about the program and they wanted more people out here. And any idea and every idea, we were gonna try them all. We were gonna try them all. And we did, every player put whatever they wanted out there and we tried them everything. And, and it's just been involved, it's been 14 years. And now we get to a point where our fans expect a, tailgate trailer type setting out there with free adult beverages out there on the in the parking lot that the fans kind of sort of organize themselves and uh you know with the free pizza and and it's just a very welcoming sort of altitude uh attitude from from us from the support from the school and we're not that raucous we're not wild and crazy there's just a lot of people and we're just i feel like you know even our visiting fans sometimes they don't know but they, they have access to everything that our fans do it's not we just want people out here and we want the student athletes at the end of the day my personal philosophy is that i want those players when they're 47 years old and they have you know the belt is a little bigger than they used to be <laughs> and they, they come back with their two kids that it brings back amazing memories that they had the best experience uh, playing tennis, and that's that's one of the ultimate goals. That they every time they come back, it just brings back an awesome experience, and that's part of it. Is feeling so, like you're yeah. relevant. Yeah, let, but let me ask you a question that I think a lot of fans wonder. So I, we go to a lot of college matches. It's ruckus. It's fun. You go to Georgia. You go to Ole Miss. You go all these places, and it's loud, and people are moving around, like you described. They're yelling, screaming. And then you go to the U.S. Open and the players, if any one person standing up before they serve, they stop and make a big deal out of it. Why do you how do the pros get to a point where they can't handle that ruckusness that happens in college tennis? Um, well, I, I assume it's just out of you just don't expect it. You know, you yeah. just don't uh, you're not used to it and you're used to a certain 
way and that's you know we can talk about remember the the whole roditi rule with with the crowd the behavior and of the crowd and we did what, it. what is what is the roditi rule well that's what it i guess that's the way it was called but um basically in 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 in, a, in the attempt of bringing more fans part of the at least I was outspoken about it. So I'd say I, even though I'm not the only one who was doing all this and, and thinking about it, but I felt like the only way we can get our student body to come to a tennis match is if we change the perception of what fans think of tennis and the way they believe they should behave. And at the end of the day, they don't know how to behave because they've never been to a tennis match. And and we as referees and players, the moment they clap at the wrong time, we're so quick to to be like, oh, they clapped before the point was over. Let's replay the point. And, and that's the way it, it was. And, and so then that fan, they don't want to get their team in trouble. They would get reprimanded by the referee. Please don't, you know, please be quiet. Uh, you know, see we'll play, whatever you hear all the time. Uh, sit down, you know. So then... That 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 fan is not going to come back. So nope, let's, you're right. Let's oh. allow the fans to behave the same exact way they behave at a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game. Where if they want to be childish and annoying and stupid, <laughs> let them be as long as long as they're not being this you know disrespectful or personal. So there were rules sure. like no no profanity no homophobic uh, comments, no personal comments. Um, and Which is the same rule at a football game, right? Exactly. That's the exact same rule at a football, basketball, baseball game. <laughs> exactly the same. And and honestly, we only did it one year in the Big 12. The Big 12 adopted it. We did it. And for the most part, it worked. There were a couple instances that it didn't work. And the problem was, 3,000 fans showed up. It, it happened <laughs> that that year. It was Baylor, so much fun. People came. Exactly. Baylor <laughs> and Oklahoma were ranked one and two in the nation. They played at Baylor. Baylor did an amazing job of making sure they had the biggest, loudest, most obnoxious crowd possible. And according to Oklahoma players, it was just beyond terrible, the behavior. And my argument to it was all those comments that they were complaining about were breaking the rules of that, of that rule. They just couldn't enforce it. And it was Which very is the same at a baseball game. Go be an outfielder at a college world series game. It's exactly. the same thing you're describing. The whole outfield screaming stuff, but we don't cancel the game because of it or stop having fans there. Exactly. We try to police it. Yeah. Exactly. And and my point has been ever since we changed the rule back to what it was. It did move the needle, so I'm I'm okay with that. I did I do believe we're not as quick to be like, oh my God, he sneezed right when I serve. Um, <laughs> so we're 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 less of that. Um but I believe the solution was how do we how can we do it in a costly you know, in a way that it doesn't cost us, which, which I think you just need volunteers, and you have this jersey. Right. You know those jerseys. So at TCU, we're purple and white and black. So you get red jerseys or yellow, like a traffic person that, and it has staff on it. And you have this little—I don't know what they're called. They're not jerseys. Whatever they're called, that you put on top of your clothing. A vest uh, or something. Yeah. You know, like you know when you play youth yeah. sports, you just throw yeah. it over. Uh, right. You wash them in like in a second. Um, and, and it says staff on it and you, you get, you know, if you have a crowd of a thousand people, okay, you probably get 10, 10 volunteers. They're watching the match. It just says staff on it, staff, yellow, obvious. And I guarantee you that if you're standing anywhere near one of them, you're not going to say anything. And the moment that you do say something that that volunteer goes, Hey, that's against the rules. You can't call that player that. And if you do it again, we're going to take you out. That's it. Yeah. And that's Which how you is, fix I, that. I mean, I was a high school administrator 
and we would have the football games. And just like you said, uh, there would you could yell, hey, whatever. But when you started targeting number 10, you stink. Okay, that's when we're going to shut it down. Right. But it amazes me that tennis, why do you think tennis isn't more focused on the fans? Why do they have a college tennis match between two teams at 11 in the morning on a Friday instead of waiting until 6 o'clock at night on a Friday? Why do they not care more about what will attract fans to the match? Yeah, I think it has. I think I think it has a lot. Of, at least at the, at the power of five, it has changed. And... You know, and the lighting of the courts. You know, back in the day, we just didn't even have lights to play at night. Now, now I believe if you look at most of the Power of Five dual matches are either on a Friday afternoon or a weekend. Uh, if you play during the week, it's understood and the coaches kind of know that we're going to play at night, which means if I go play Virginia and we, we play Virginia on a Thursday night, I know we're going to get back. So the budgets have increased. They allow us to stay one more night, one more night of hotel. Oh, I'm yeah. like the next day the, the administrators see the value. So everything is, it is much better. Are there yeah. still matches on a Friday at 11? Yes. Um, why? Yeah, that, that shouldn't happen. Not if you want, not if you want to promote and become relevant in your community. And that would be if somebody said, what would be your tip? It's just do everything you can. Start with one match at a time, a couple little principles, and be, become as relevant as you can within your city. I I bet yeah. the best level of tennis at any city is their college level. Yep. Um, for the most part, I would say that's 100% true unless you live where, you know, yeah. And and how does yeah. how does uh how does your team engage with the community uh, in terms of you know hitting with juniors or running clinics or you know something something along those lines? What, what do you guys do specifically that allows you guys to to connect with the yeah, community? Yeah, we've done we've done a lot of things. Uh, we use now we use pickleball as as a way to okay. to do some events. It's easy. It's less yeah. intimidating. It's more inclusive. Uh, so we'll do something like that. Um, we, we had a sort of what we call an open day festival type thing, live music clinic, free clinic to all the, all the fans in the fall, 930 to you're 11 being, and then 11 you're to 12. You're being intentional. Yeah. So you're being intentional. It, it yeah, takes a lot, awesome. it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. I mean, Devin, Devin would, would tell you, he gets frustrated with the amount of time that I've spent the times and the amount of, um, amount of uh, energy put into into doing this and um, at the same time as you know you have kids as parents you have a million things going on so you have your kids and I myself I'm a single father uh, I'm divorced with two boys seven and nine they play baseball and hockey and they each have a cut a, a practice and a game for each one so that's at least eight events during that week, that, you know, and it's just crazy. And so you're fighting, you're fighting and you're competing with all these other events. Everybody wants the same fans that you want. So what are you going to do? How are you going to win them over? We just did an awesome event uh, with, with our little baseball league. We invited because of my kids and coach Lee Walker on the women's side. We both have boys that play baseball and, it's like 500 kids. So we invited and we kind of did a this league versus this league type event. We had our super frog out here. We had pizza. We had live music. We had face painting. We had tattoo making. We had uh, a little hitting machine. We had all these courts. We had 200 kids between five and, and, and eight, five years old to 13 with a men's and women's team being in charge of each court. Uh, we had a little exhibition at the end, all at night. Uh, what else did we have? I'm for, oh, oh, yeah. we had you, a, hey, you, we had a, you got me. Group. I'm ready to come. Yeah. When, we when's the next match? Group. We're ready. <laughs> yeah, and we told the parents, you know, as a parent, I appreciate it. So drop your kids off. You can either drop your kids off from 6.30 at night to 8.30, drop them off and leave. It's perfectly safe. 
We'll, we'll feed them. We'll have cookies, dessert, ice cream at the end, super frog, the photo booth. They'll go home with a picture, um, drop them off, or you can watch and we'll have adult beverages and music. If you want to just chill, <laughs> or you can play pickleball. And, wow. um, I mean, how awesome is that as a parent? It's, you're it's, like, yeah. Oh, and by the way, it's free. So yeah. I don't know. Somebody yeah. said, well, what'd you get out of that? I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. But yeah, you can't, you can't measure it, but you know that you're moving the needle. So, right. So anyway, I get, like that. I get, I, I get, get my voice uh, rise. I get excited. Getting right? excited. Well, and I guarantee your players would much rather play in front of fans than play in front of an empty stadium. Right. So what you might get out of it is just a bunch of your players enjoying every time they hit a winner, the crowd cheering for them, simple stuff like that, that may, that may win you a match in the third set that might've been lost if not for that energy. Every player, every player wants that. Win or lose, they'd rather win in front of a lot of players. They'd rather lose in front, and they want to feel relevant. They want to walk right. on campus knowing that they're relevant and yeah. that there's a presence, especially in today's society. I mean, let's, you know, we could go down that rabbit hole of, yeah. of this generation and how much they value themselves according to how popular they are and blah, blah, blah. That, that's kind of the bad, that's kind of the bad part. I think mental health has a lot to do with that. And, and, um, you know, for the first time I, I posted a picture of one of my players and this person never complains about anything. He's the nicest guy in the world. And he was so mad at me because I put the wrong picture for him <laughs> for his birthday. And I'm like, Oh my God, this would have never happened, but that's the reality. And, and, and the social media that, branding, yeah, the branding of them matters. Uh, yeah. I realized, I realized it when my wife posted a picture of my son and he was upset. I was like, what do you care? <laughs> he didn't want an image out there of him that he didn't want to vet and look at and make sure it was correct. Okay. Correct. And that's why, let me ask you, and that's why we're in radio, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so let me ask let me ask you a question. So I'm texting with Matias from Tucker Tennis that now is uh one of the coaches at Tennessee. Yes. And he wants he wants you to answer this question. Uh, -oh. uh you got you got a high level now he sent me four. I'm only gonna ask you one because we're about towards the end. But uh -oh. um this this is the one he sent that I like the most. So you got players that are high level, right? Imagine they're top fifty in the country in the US or even in the world. Uh, but they're a sophomore, junior, in high school. What what advice are you giving them as they as they enter and and begin recruiting uh, or the recruiting process? Uh, for example, we we know somebody who's just become a junior. Now colleges can talk to this person, but really not really getting much attention. And I think there's a misconception that the tennis world's kind of like college football, where you're going to get a million calls the first day they can talk to you. And tennis just isn't that way. So what advice would you give to those players that are real high level sophomore juniors? Yeah, I would say be proactive. Be proactive. proactive. It's never been as easy as it is today. You can go and literally look at every player's UTR in a lineup. You can kind of take a, a realistic assessment and, and you go kind of like best case scenario this is going to be my level, probably best case scenario. This, so I'm going to contact these 20 schools and uh, sort of most likely scenario and then worst case scenario. And then you, you go from there. But, you know, I, um, I, I've, I've had players, good players say, coach, you never call me. I said, well, you never call me either. <laughs> and, and we can only, we can only do so much in the recruiting and we, we are the worst. I mean, Devin and I, now Stephen Foreman, we're not, we're not good at that. And if 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 TCU is one of your dream schools and you feel like you fit here, contact us. I almost, I said, Devin, would it be completely wrong to just put a post on social media everywhere and say, looking for a player for twenty, you know, twenty five, spring of twenty five, whatever, fall twenty four next year. Uh, UTR between this and this, WTN between this and this, um, this much scholarship available. Call us if you are interested. And he looked at me and kind of laughed, and he's like, 
man, that'd be complete tank. But I'm like, <laughs> what's wrong with that? Why would that be so bad? If, if today we're all busy, everybody's busy, and we just get to the point with all this other stuff, what's wrong about that? But it is, I guess it's view, like you're just not. But yeah, I would say be proactive, know who, you know, know kind of where you're at, and and go there. I, I get so mad at some of these recruiting agency companies. And they say, we have a per- great player for you, coach. He's a 8.6 UTR. He has a $10,000 budget and he's a perfect fit for your program. And I'm like, I want to call the player and go <laughs> fire this agency right now. <laughs> fire them. They don't know their job. Right. Um, so I would, I would say that because you know, and I, and I think that applies to, to life. I think if there's something you want and something you believe you, you could be, don't wait and don't wait for it. You might be the, you might still be at that high school dance waiting for somebody to ask you to go dance, go dance, go ask that person to go dance yourself. Don't wait to be asked. So, and, and is it, and is that sort of the same thing you'd say to somebody that maybe is, you know, like say Matias's example was, you know, sort of that blue chip, um, five-star type player, but maybe someone that's below the radar that hasn't had, you know, maybe they got a late start. Maybe they played multiple sports and their maybe their UTR isn't what the range that you're looking for. How, how would they get your attention? Yes. If, if there is, so, so on the men's side, on the men's side, scholarship plays a big part of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can start by looking on a roster. And if you are, not quite where you need to be, but you feel like you will be. You feel like you just got a late start. And um, you go on our website and you notice that, let's say you're you're a junior, so you're looking at how many juniors are there? How many players will they lose that year? And you see that we're gonna lose four players that year. Okay, there's an opening there. That That is, that, that, that coach could have a, a spot for someone who's not quite there, assuming the scholarship is going to be a fit. Um, and so what? And, and so what you're saying is, if if it's a wealthy person who has a child who's maybe an 11 UTR, which it probably wouldn't be in your lineup, but they're willing to come and develop and pay their full way, you may flirt with that. That's what you're saying. Correct. And 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 make sure that, that we have the spots. Uh, that we lose those spots as well. So you can kind of screen, do a little bit of homework so you're not, so you don't feel, right. you don't feel sort of, you know, like like a lot of people are telling you, no, 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 you're just kind of not doing enough screening to know kind of what the, the real world, you know, you have teams like SMU who, that carry 18, 19, 20, 16, 15, I don't know how many players. Okay, <laughs> there's more opportunities for somebody like that there. Uh, TCU were typically between eight and ten. This is the biggest team we have ten already, biggest squad we've ever had, and and we did take some of those players that we felt have the right culture, not quite there. We know them personally, and and we feel like they could develop one day into it. So we'll see. So I would just say, do a little bit of that, of that research and contact that. But even as a blue chip. You know, I mean, I, there there are blue chips out there that I've never contacted, hmm. and and if TCU don't, it doesn't mean that I don't. I just got, I was busy with other blue chips. Um, so I, I but if one reached out to you, then that tells you they're interested. Exactly. In that I mean, that's huge. Yeah. You you're gonna you're gonna automatically right away be like, okay, let's do this. And you know, I had a player. We had a this is unbelievable. Think about this. We had a, as a senior, December, December of their senior year in high school, a two-star, two-star. And I met him and I'm like, wow, this guy's intense. <laughs> so he, he, I liked it. He was very sharp, very well-spoken, very direct. And I could sense the energy, the competitiveness, which is a huge part of, of our sport. And, and I was very honest with him. I said, look, you, you're not even close. You're going to have to start beating four stars, three, four stars, five stars for us to, for us to even consider you. 
in your, you know, it's, this is December of their senior year. Well, every week, I beat a three-star coach. I beat a four-star. Uh, I just beat a four-star. I beat another five-star. And I'm like, wow, this guy is on it. And it became his thing. And his level did get better. He was a huge lefty. Uh, used to be a quarterback. Used to be a basketball player. Played every sport. And he finally said, okay, tennis is going to be. So I, I'm like, for three months of that, I, it's April. I call him. And I say, his name is Hudson Blake from Arizona. I said, Hudson, I got good news. We have a spot for you. Wow. And he says, well, how about scholarship? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, Hudson? You, we, we finally, I feel like I'm going to make your day giving you a spot. And you want scholarship? I go, that's just, I'm like, wow. In a way, I kind of liked his mentality. And that's the reason why we did give him a spot. I'm like, look, we can't do that. He's like, okay, okay, I'll take the spot. I'll take the spot. I was just, you know. Trying, trying bottom line, bottom line, he was as engaged in the process as you. He didn't just sit like you, you gave a good analogy. He didn't sit around in the dance and wait for somebody to come ask you to dance. He was out there asking people to dance. I and, get he it. Told that makes story. Sense. and he told his story. We all have a story. Share your story, especially in a situation like that. And um, he ended up playing doubles for us. He played doubles for four years would have been an all-american had he not quit his senior year which i'm still so mad at him and i think he might be himself too um he beat harris and axel alvarez who are two top five players in the country beat on 6-0 in the dual match and number one doubles and he played on a final four team this is a two-star two-star recruit his senior year so that's anyways yeah. Um, well, that, yeah, that, that, like I say, I think that's awesome. And it just sort of shows the, the passion that you need to have to, to pursue, you know, what may be a stretch. Um, but if you don't have that passion, you know, you're never going to get anywhere near your goal. Um, but in, and for you to, to say, not yet, not yet, here's what you got to do. You didn't tell him, no, it's like, this is, this is impossible. You told him what he needed to do, and then he's able to do it. Correct. Correct. And, um, yeah, but the, the part that we get a lot as coaches is, uh, I know it says that I'm 11.1 <laughs> UTR, but that's really not my level. Yeah. Actually, it is your level. It is. <laughs> it is what it is. It actually is. Don't say that because it is. Yeah. It is. You've played 100 matches this year and you're 11. That's a pretty well thought out algorithm oh. and you're somewhere around there. I mean, you, you could say I can play up to 11.3. Yeah, probably. But you can also play down to 10.7. Yeah. That's why you're 11.1. I exactly. get it. Um, just say why, where do you feel you're going to improve so that that 11 could turn into a 12.5 in one year or whatever, you know? Well, one, one of the things I think a lot of people try to avoid is that college coaches care about the UTR. And they do. Like, I don't know why we try to act like they don't. I mean, if I bet you, if you, if a kid emails you, it, you tell me if I'm right. I bet if a kid emails and says, "Hey, coach, I'm interested in playing at TCU next year," the first thing you do is go look up their UTR. A hundred percent. Am I wrong? 100%. Yeah. So I don't know why people try to avoid that. That's it is what it is. Yes, it's reality. It is what it is. Well, it, it's it, reality. It's from there. I either engage or not, because you've got to have some kind of screening. Yeah. If I, you know, back in the day in the classifieds, and I am famous for using very terrible analogies, and I'll just be myself, but, you know, I'm, I'm on a dating site, and you need to be a female for me. That's, that's where we start. You know, if you're not a female, I, we're not going to, it doesn't matter. The rest doesn't matter. So no. if you're not, if you're no. not. Yeah. In but the range, if you're not in the range, then it it doesn't matter. So but I'm when sorry. you're on the date when you're on the dating site, are you five six with the potential to, to get to five nine? My whole theory <laughs> in life and in recruiting what is your height? Is, yeah, it is you you undersell, under promise, and over deliver. <laughs> there you go. Under promise, over deliver. So no, I'm, I'm probably 5'4 if I was going to do one of those. 
And then, and then like, they're surprised when they show they, up in person. Like, hey, like, you're not fun. Wow, you're bigger than I thought. <laughs> I mean, how good is that? I'm, I'm like, let's go, let's go to dinner. <laughs> you said I was yeah, bigger I, than I thought. So, anyways. Well, what's okay. funny is the parents who complain about UTR mattering in recruiting are the same same ones that when they look at their child's draw for a tournament on the weekend, the first the first round match they play, the first thing they do is go look up the UTR of the kid they're playing. <laughs> Like, yes. I get yes. I, now. I do think there's some discrepancy discrepancy in UTRs across the country. Uh, I think there's some areas of the country that are inflated; they're higher than what they really are, and I think there's right. others that are lower than they are. But the reality is, is it's probably not off by too much. Yeah, right. correct. There's, um, there's definitely there's always going to be no matter what system we have, and we can get into the whole weeds of junior tennis and systems and ratings and all that. There's always going to be that family or kid that figures it out and knows a way to to beat it. And the problem is, this is what you're doing. Let's say you get really good at inflating your UTR. Therefore, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt and you're going to end up in a program with a scholarship that doesn't really fit. And the coach thought he was getting X and he didn't get what it looked like he was going to get. And that is not a good start to that relationship. And yes, you were able to get a bigger scholarship than you thought. You ended up in a better team than you probably deserve or whatever, in, assuming in this scenario, okay, I'm painting this picture. Um, you're going to end up transferring because eventually your level will show. And all you've done is wasted a year, you know, yeah. yeah, that makes total sense. So let me let me ask a question, and then I know Scott's going to want to get us to the fast feed. I almost uh, went to an analogy with my with my dating, but I I didn't. So I wanted that to be proud <laughs> of me because I thought maybe no, I like it. Shut uh, up. <laughs> Under promise, over deliver. I like it. Um, <laughs> so right. please ask me another question. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, here here we go. So do you do you think that a, let's say there's a mom or dad out there listening, and their child's in sixth, seventh, or eighth grade? Um, there's two schools of thoughts for those two, those sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Some say hold them back before they go to high school, and then if you want to classify back up again in high school, you can always do that. Or school of thought number two is stay in your grade, and then when you go to college, if you're still developing, growing, maybe go to a smaller college, prove yourself, and then get in the portal, transfer uh, to a larger one once you've proven yourself at the college level. Which direction do you think is the better one, or is it de just dependent on the kid? Man, I, you know, I would like to believe, ideally, that you're, you're doing what's best for your kid regardless in life, not tennis, just... Sure you know, that you're not compromising who he is as a, as a kid. And, and, you know, if he's really good academically and, and you're just holding him back because you might give him a, a higher star rating in tennis recruiting and he's academically. Make just, straight A's. Yeah. You're just holding him. I, I, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. There's no doubt that, waiting a year is um, beneficial with your rating and and and, and um, in your opportunities for scholarship and all that 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 is true there is a benefit because you're compared to younger now it's happening so much now that you're almost at a disadvantage if you don't wait a year um, but we as coaches, we're, we're looking, we're also looking at not just the, the class that they're in, but you look at the at their age yeah. as well. And, you know, we have players this year, blue chips, and some are, some are born a year behind others. And you just take that in, in your consideration and might explain why the younger player has, is not as strong, not as fast, not as impressive, maybe not quite. At the level that, and you understand, he's a year younger. He's a whole year younger, even though they're in the same class. So, we're, we're getting better at realizing that. Uh, with that kid, I, I would do anything not to transfer. So relying on transferring is tough. But I will also say that these days, 
transfer it's never been easier that to transfer and it's maybe it's okay so that's i'm i believe i believe that we as boys and i think every girl i've ever dated would agree with this that we're more immature than than um as boys mature later than than females in in general so i would see that on the on the boy side giving them a year of, of maturity and it's not a bad idea uh, my my son is born in june and i held him back right from the very beginning and it, it had nothing to do with sports i just felt for him i i rather him you know grow a little more confident and be a little bit one of the older and and have some success early on um, for confidence wise and, and his concentration levels i thought wasn't quite ready for to move up and it's a summer birthday so i held him back my second one i didn't so anyways i don't know if that answers yeah. your question uh, just a, yeah it depends on the kid basically what yeah. you're saying it depends, it on, depends the on the kid and you know your financial situation if yeah if you don't have any money at all yeah you probably have to hold him back just to get a little better scholarship Thank you.